Hello, everybody. Welcome to Health Chatter and today's episode on epidemiology and measurement. And we will really get into that because it's, a, it's an important subject, especially as all these health subjects unfold. There's always a need for background research and, and the data in order for us to make good, sound decisions, not only on treatment, but also on uh, prevention initiatives as well. So we have a great guest with us. I'll get to him in a minute. As always, I'd like to introduce our great staff and our staff is expanding. We have five background people that are that are now helping us with our shows. We have uh, Maddie Levine-Wolf, Aaron Collins, and Deandra Howard, who are doing our background research for us. We have Matthew Campbell, who's our production manager, takes care of all the logistics for editing and sound sound quality for the shows that we get out to the public. And we also have Sheridan Nygaard, who's also helping us with, with research, but also a, um, a marketing aspects for our, our show. Then, of course, there's, there's Clarence, who... Um, balances out the show really, really nicely with the community perspective. And it's been a really, a really good balance, I must say. It really, it focuses not only, you know, I have a tendency with my background from public health to kind of come at it from this way, but but Clarence brings in the community perspective and it's greatly, greatly appreciated. And we complement each other very, very nicely. Good, good collegial relationship here. And then we have Human Partnership, who's the sponsor for our, our show. Great organ, community organization. Very, very involved in, in health issues for all people. And uh, we greatly appreciate their assistance in helping us make health chatter successful. Today, as I said, we're going to be talking about epidemiology and measurement. I've got a great, great colleague. And I'll, I'll, I'm going to start, start out with a, a sidebar here. Oftentimes, John would, his office was like two doors down from mine when I was at the health department. And inevitably, I'd, I'd either be walking down the hallway one in one direction, or John would be walking down the hallway in another direction. And we'd be stopping in each other's offices close the door and off we'd go and chat. And we would really catch up on a variety of, of different things in the, in the health arena. I miss those times together. I really, really do. It was um, indeed, indeed special, but we're still good colleagues nonetheless, even though it's a little bit more from, from afar. So John, um, Ressler is currently now an assistant professor and program director of public health programs at St. Mary's University of, of Minnesota, which was actually fairly recently. That started last summer. The, the, the programs that, that he oversees includes the Master of Public Health Degrees, Community Health Worker Certificates. Before joining St. Mary's, in the summer, last summer, he served with the Minnesota Department of Health for over 33 years. Wow, 
long, long, long tenure. And he's still involved with them. He's still connected with the uh, the Minnesota Department of Health. It, it was always interesting whenever there was an epidemiological oriented question. In many ways, John was like the go-to person at, at the health department because he covered a variety of different subjects in, in the health arena injury and violence and oral health, uh, cardiovascular health, um, and always was really good at coming up with what were the questions that we really needed answered in order for us to be successful in establishing programmatic initiatives. And so I, I really, really greatly appreciated him for that. Recently, um, John co-authored an article that came out in uh, Public Health Reports, Trends in Deaths Fully Attributed to Alcohol in the State of Minnesota. This is from the year 2000 to 2018. So it's a good, a good study. I would recommend that people take a look at that. So John, I could go on because there's like 33 years of good stuff here. I could go on with the accolades, but welcome to Health Chatter. It's, it's a pleasure having you. So let's get, the, let's get the show on the road here. So, you know, Maddie asked me, should I, how do you want to focus this particular show? And I was thinking, God, wouldn't it be interesting if we looked at epidemiology and measurement historically, what it was historically, then what we do presently, and then what we might see of it going forward with all the different forms of data technology that we have. So let's start historically. So John, you know, I know you're not a, you know, a strong historian, but you know, being an epidemiologist, you know, those are your roots. So what, what's your sense of that? Historically, where were we? How did all this epi stuff come to be, more or less? Yeah, uh, that's a um, really good question. So I'm formulating some just all kinds of thoughts just come rushing to my head. You know, I think <laughs> back to um, uh, when you talk about the history, I talk about, I think about the plague epidemic and in um, Europe, and how communities developed responses to the plague epidemic based upon data, uh, based upon mortality data that they got off the burial registers. Um, you know, I think about that. I think about Jon Snow and the um, yes. investigation of uh, cholera, and you and I have talked about that. Yeah, in, the Broad uh, Street Pump in London. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I think about um, the early origins of uh, the Centers for Disease Control, um, uh, which was with the United States Navy and uh, doing quarantines on ships when they came into the harbor. And this is also why uh, the Public Health Service uses the, um, uh, the Navy's um, uh, rankings for its officers. And, uh, you know, the Surgeon General is, uh, has an admiral status, et cetera. Uh, so that's all the origins of the CDC with uh, the quarantine for the U.S. Navy and harbors developing into the CDC, the uh, uh, communicable disease control, 
which eventually became the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Um, and then I think in Minnesota, uh, you know, the world kind of begins a little bit uh, with Andy Dean, um, one of the early uh, uh, state epidemiologists who preceded Michael Osterholm. And, uh, you know, he's the one who uh, developed the original EpiInfo, uh, which is a tool used by epidemiologists around the world for doing all kinds of investigations. Uh, and then we think about Mike Osterholm, of course, and uh, the work that he had done as state epidemiologist uh, uh, in, uh, in Minnesota. So those are just all the things that come flooding into my mind um, when I think about the early parts. But, and I think to your point, a lot of it starts with infectious disease. And that's really where uh, Epi has its roots, whether you're looking at plague, whether you're looking at cholera. Uh, whether you're looking at influenza, uh, whatever the case may be. COVID. Yeah, and now COVID. It's the, the origins of epidemiology really are with infectious disease. And that's really the sexy part, <laughs> uh, you know, of, um, uh, of, the, uh, of epidemiology. And, of course, what brought me originally into epidemiology, I think, was uh, all the work going on around HIV when I was in graduate school. And I thought I was gonna grow up to become an HIV epidemiologist. And um, uh, epi job up in North Dakota, I applied for the HIV epi position. And then when I got there for the interview, they said, sorry, it's already filled, but we do have a diabetes epidemiologist position available. I go, I don't know anything about diabetes, but yeah, I'll take it. So I started off as a diabetes epidemiologist um, uh, in, in that regard. So that's all the stuff that goes flooding through my head, Stan. When you start talking about the history, I'm just going, oh, my goodness. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and you know what? It, and it's, it's really interesting uh, history. And, and one thing I can add to that is, is this epidemiology and the work that it has done historically complements all health-related fields. Okay, so like it obviously is an important component in the public health arena. It's obviously a very important component in the medical arena, for sure. So we, we all depend on what I call the Sherlock Holmeses of health, and those are our epidemiologists, in order for us to answer, hopefully answer some of the um, the questions. So, um, Clarence, what's your, how do you feel on that one? You know what, John, thank you for that, that historical <laughs> perspective. Uh, and I, I really like your story about going in for one thing and coming up, I mean, going in for one job and coming up with another job which talks about the the the, the foundation and, and the groundwork for our epi. I wanna ask you this question though, um, in the community, we seldom use that word, epidem you know, epidemiology. Why is it important for us to really know this topic or know something about this topic? Because I, I personally, I told you my story, I, I, I couldn't even pronounce the word for about, about three, four years. Why is it important for community people to really understand uh, the importance of this work and why they should be more knowledgeable about it? Yeah. So I, I um, 
share, uh, have a similar kind of story, Clarence, um, in, res in response to that. I think about the first person who I met who was involved with epidemiology. So I was uh, working at the University of Minnesota as a research assistant um, uh, in admissions and records doing uh, institutional research. And one of the grad students that was there uh, in doing some work was a woman by the name of Julia Wanamaker. And I said, so Julia, what, what are you studying in graduate school? And Julia says, I'm studying epidemiology. I said, oh, the study of skin. <laughs> and she just laughed. I mean, and that shows my ignorance at the time, you know? Yeah. So yeah. And she says, no, that's dermatology. <laughs> I'm studying epidemiology. And, uh, you know, you go back to the to the uh, words of epidemiology. And so it's epi uh, upon demos, the people. So uh, just like mm. demography. So epi, uh, like in epidemics, it's what is upon the people, the study of epidemics that happen and occur to the population. And the demos is uh, the, um, uh, the population really is the emphasis where a physician takes care of an individual, an epidemiologist and a physician, if you think about uh, the work that they do is, is um, uh, diagnosing and prescribing to a large degree. And so they do it for individuals and epidemiologist does this for populations. It diagnoses and then it comes up with the best interventions at a population level uh, versus an individual level. So this is kind of the hallmark of epidemiology. Uh, and to a large degree, you know, when you think about public health origins and I think about my training in public health um, and uh, I think about the kind of the triad of public health workers in a uh, local public health and you'd have a public health nurse and you'd have a sanitarian and you'd have an epidemiologist. Uh, that was uh, uh, often the basic triad for local public health. So Epi doing the investigations um, and originally starting often with infectious disease, often doing the gumshoe piece. They often talk about gumshoe epidemiologists uh, following up on STDs and tuberculosis. Um, so those kinds of things have changed over time. The topics have changed, but the, many of the tools uh, still are with us. You know, thank you. You had mentioned, you know, historically, you know, we can go back to um, London. You know, we can talk about mm -hmm. um, John, John Snow. Snow. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, back then they didn't have, you know, the, certainly the, the data oriented tools that we have today. They certainly didn't even have computers. And so they did the, you know, the gumshoe walking the streets to see what the heck is going on here. But one thing that all that I have found that all epidemiologists have in common is that, you know, that Sherlock Holmes component to it all. It's like, where is it? What is it? Where do we find it? You know, they they know how to ask the hard questions that many of us in the health field don't know, but we depend upon epidemiologists to uh, to address it and answer those questions for us. So um, moving 
forward, though, hi historically, I mean, you know, John, you talked about infectious diseases, but then, you know, uh, you know, thanks to Manny, you know, they, in the 80s, we started looking at injury and violence. I mean, we yeah. started measuring other what we deemed as health related issues. Yeah. So the, the one of the first things that comes to mind there, as you talk about, is the um, uh, work on the homicides in Atlanta that was done by CDC. So homicides was, you know, very much considered to be a criminal justice issue. And they were having an outbreak of homicides in Atlanta. And I'm not quite sure who the individual was, but they said, well, what if we applied some public health approaches to studying the homicides? And so CDC uh, stepped in. I think they used some of their EIS officers and they investigated the homicides in Atlanta. This was really significant because now we're viewing a new topic which had been completely in the uh, in the criminal justice realm and moved it into public health. Now, the big change that we've seen over the years, of course, is with the violent death reporting system, uh, the National Violent Death Reporting System and the Minnesota Violent Death Reporting System. I was PI, the principal investigator for the Minnesota Violent Death Reporting System, uh, uh, up until my departure from the Minnesota Department of Health. One of the works that, uh, uh, some of the work that we initiated while I was there was developing a dashboard, which just within the last couple of weeks, that dashboard for Minnesota Violent Death Reporting System has gone online and is available at the Minnesota Department of Health's website. Finally, finally. It. Yeah, it takes, this is decades of work. I remember back, we were starting to work on this and I remember, um, uh, working with uh, Dr. Neil Holton at the time, who was medical director Correct. for uh, St. Paul Ramsey County Public Health. And he was such an advocate for a data-based approach. And we had, at that time, basically death certificate data. And one of the things that was very much a controversy at the time was firearm deaths, gun deaths. Yes. And it's still a hot topic. But Neil said, Let's look at the data. And he took this to the Minnesota Medical Association. And lo and behold, about 75% of the gun deaths were suicides, not homicides. Everyone's talking about homicides, but he says, let's actually look at the gun deaths. And 75% were suicides. That changes the whole conversation when we start talking about firearms. Uh, so this is doing a data approach uh, bringing data to different topics, including things like homicide and suicide, uh, which it's not been thought of as a public health issues, and bringing a public health approach to these. Another example of, of coming in using a public health approach is within motor vehicle traffic crash. Uh, yes. And we had significant reduction on that. And you know what? Public health is not the lead agency for reducing public, for re reducing motor vehicle crash deaths. However, public it is safety. a approach that is being used to address the problem of um, a motor vehicle crash. The lead agency really at the governmental level for doing that is NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Correct. which has uh, was uh, initially started and I believe has continued to be led by a physician um, in, uh, 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 in its work. And so they've utilized a public health approach to addressing the problem of motor vehicle crash. So it's not just public health that gets to use the public health approach. 
it's other agencies, other organizations, other, other governmental entities. Um, and epidemiology is part of that because that, uh, in essence, becomes uh, the understanding and the tools that you use to analyze the data that's coming in. Correct. You know, one thing I have I have realized that, um, you know, you, you oftentimes, um, you know, the public could often ask the question, what should a Department of Health be responsible for. And you know what? If epidemiology isn't part of that answer, then I think we've really lost it. Because it epi and and the data and the and the answers to the questions that we have are vitally important for all of us in order to be able to address any of the health issues that we're looking at. Clarence. You know, uh, John, once again, you said a couple of things that really just kind of struck me. Uh, and it was that story about uh, Atlanta, the murder rates, those kinds of things. And when um, uh, taking a look at it all, when you're talking about the, the issue around uh, gun violence and things like that, uh, people hear gun violence. And I'm speaking from a community perspective. And people hear about gun violence, they usually think it's about in a certain area, certain groups of people, those kinds of things. But using epidemiology, you you were able to uh, sort that out and say that most of that was suicides. So I, I think that the, the thing that I, I would I would ask you is this: is how can community use epidemiology in their work to create a better narrative? Mm -hmm. So I, I think um, uh, back to the questions that often got asked of me and. Uh, 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 some of the ways communities have used this, it, using, for example, the issue about gun violence. Um, we had our some of our early data, hospital data, uh, available on the health department's website you know, within a section called MIDAS, the Minnesota Injury Data Access System. So within MIDAS, you could look at hospitalization data. And I remember um, a... Um, uh, a person working for a nonprofit called me up once and says, hey, John, I'm looking at your numbers here uh, on Midas for hospitalized firearm injury, and it seems like things are ticking up for Minneapolis. And uh, it seems like we have an increasing trend. Mm -hmm. says, but I, I don't know about all these things. Could you look at that, John, and see if, if I'm interpreting that correctly? And I looked at it and I said, you are absolutely correct. Uh, I hadn't known about that, um, you know, but the data was there. Uh, she looked at it and uh, I said, this is a real issue. We sh need to do something about it. We need to raise the alarm about this. We need to call attention to it. And uh, eventually what came out of that then was, to make a long story short, was the blueprint to prevent youth violence in Minneapolis. Mm. And it was all wow. a person in the community looking at the data that we had published online. So one of the things is that in as public health epi has changed is that we have so much data that we don't have time to look at all the data that we have. One of the reasons we have dashboards and try to make this available is so that community members can generate their own hypotheses, go in and look at the data. And the first question that people probably ask is how many? They want to know whatever it is, carbon monoxide poisoning, how many? 
COVID cases, how many? Uh, that's one of the first questions that always comes up and you look at it for your community. And then kind of the second question that comes up after that is, is it getting better or is it getting worse? So you're looking at trends that are going on. And this is now kind of a community approach. We try to get this data out there so that people can look at their locality and try to understand how many there are and really develop localized uh, solutions uh, to these various problems. So, it, um, yeah. I was going to ask you, is there a blueprint for community to approach ep epidemiologists? Because I think that what you're saying makes a lot of sense. I just don't think that people think like that. And so is there some some way that that that, that information could be given out so that people can 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 take a approach, a more scientific approach to these questions? Well, I, I used to do trainings uh, for the Minnesota Na um, Newspaper Association. Okay. And what I always talked about it with the reporters as I did trainings is my goal and job was to create armchair epidemiologists. Okay. <laughs> this is what we're really trying to do. Uh, we want them to do, you know, their their weekend quarterbacking. Uh, we want them to sit there and say, hey, I wonder about, and then go start looking at to see what kind of data that they can get at. And more and more, we've got these online tools. Is there a blueprint? Boy, I don't really know. Um, but uh, do we need courses on how to become an armchair epidemiologist? Absolutely. We need people thinking about this to be generating hypothesis questions. And then when they start finding things, then you can come and get the attention of people in health departments and other kinds of agencies to dig a little bit deeper uh, and find out really what's going on. So perhaps say Mary can create that armchair uh, epidemiologist uh, course, and I'll be one of the first ones to take it. Okay, just so okay. you know. Well, you yeah. can you can co-teach it with me, Clarence. You well, know. I don't. Well, I I think I I would rather listen at first, but I really do think that I mean based on what you're saying, just in those in those very short short uh, uh, in the very short statements that you've made, it's so important for us to really understand this. And and I was saying a little bit earlier is that even though you know, my my initial uh, my initial uh, relationship with epidemiology was kind of uh, somewhat shaky. I understood the importance of it, but it's how do you get people engaged in this very very important public health issue? And uh, because people like to complain, now people people look at something and say, well, you know, that's just, that's just a problem, but they don't know how to evaluate or or, or even to ask uh, the questions or to how do they seek the resources. And so what you're saying, you know, I never thought about epidemiology in that particular perspective, but I do think that that, that armchair epidemiologist is a, is a good course to take. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'll tell you, um, at the health department, and 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 John, you know, our, our dear colleague, uh, Jim Peacock, who is the, you know, an epidemiologist in the uh, cardiovascular arena. And I remember asking him when we first interviewed him for his position you know here's an epidemiologist and i said what is it that you want to be able to do at a state health department as an epidemiologist and this is this is what i'm going to ask you as well he said you know it's one thing for us as epidemi epidemiologists to describe what is 
In other words, you know, what is happening? What are, how many people are dying? What are the numbers? How, what's happening in our community? What's happening by populations, et cetera. But his response was in his frustration, and I'm wondering if this is part of yours perhaps too, is it's one thing to know what is. It's another thing to be part of the team to define what should be done about it. Mm -hmm. So could you respond to that a little bit? It's like, like, you know, the epidemiologists are, you know, like I keep saying these, these Sherlock Holmes people that really get to the data and give us all the information. Do you, did you ever, as, as an epidemiologist, feel that angst of, okay, hey, I just told you, you know, what is. Now let's all figure out what should be done going forward. So one of the things and areas of uh, where epidemiology is going for the future, where it is now and where it's going to the future, is in studying these interventions. Um, we in public health, you know, we talk a lot about um, uh, uh, evidence-based uh, interventions. Um, but if you look at the concept of evidence-based interventions, you see it's really a triad of uh, a three-legged stool, mm -hmm. uh, of which one is the scientific evidence, um, but the other two being uh, uh, the professional's expertise and uh, professional opinion, as well as third, the community uh, that you're delivering the intervention to and the community's preferences. Uh, what you would do for an American Indian community is not the same what you might do for a majority culture uh, mm -hmm. community. And so the th a lot of times that weak leg on the stool is the science based. Now, you can still have an evidence based intervention, but the science may not be there yet. And public health has to move forward many times, uh, as they did with COVID and making lots of recommendations before all the science was laid down mm -hmm. uh, and people tend to fault public health for that, but public health needs to move forward uh, on this. But now, where is um, epidemiology come into this? I think epidemiology is coming into learning how to do the studies of these different kinds of investigations uh, and to develop different analytical techniques to find out, okay, so what's working? How can we evaluate? How can we figure out if this intervention is working? What can we how can we deliver an intervention in such a way that we can actually detect uh, if it's an effective intervention uh, and develop the science around it? So clinical trials, of course, comes out of this, clinical trials being a kind of prospective study that really is, uh, especially the randomized clinical trial uh, has become the standard for, how, for making determination if an intervention is effective. Um, but, of course, there are some ethical limits on randomized clinical trials, such as, you know, you say, well, uh, does smoking really cause uh, lung cancer or not? And you can't randomize a group of individuals and have one group smoke cigarettes and the other group not smoke cigarettes. Um, that would be in that would be unethical at this point, given the right. knowledge base that exists. Right. right. So sometimes, depending on what the disease, the condition, the population you're looking at, you have to develop other analytical techniques for looking at the effectiveness of uh, various interventions. I think back to um, a, uh, uh, a study we had looked at for preventing diabetes in urban Indian youth. 
And uh, we had four schools to work with. It was a very small um, group that we had, but we um, uh, used a study design uh, so that everyone would get the intervention so that we could be ethical. But we had delayed onset uh, of, um, of the school. So we started each school uh, sequentially about a year apart from each other so that mm-hmm. the last school would have mo- the most years of um, uh, non-intervention so that we could really look and see if we could detect differences mm-hmm. uh, uh, in the schools. So this was a, a community trial and of course, now this is a whole area of epidemiology, the, the development of the methodologies around community trials. That's really important. And I think that's one of the things, Stan, that you know we get at. What's the role for epidemiology? And it's developing this toolbox. When I think of epidemiology, I think of a toolbox. Uh, and you know, Stan, you alluded at the beginning of all the different uh, areas and topics I've worked in. And you go, yeah, epidemiology is a toolbox that we can take to different diseases and conditions. One of the joys within, as an epidemiologist at the um, uh, health department level and the state health department level is attending the Council of State and Territorial Epidemiologists because they have epis dealing with all these different kinds of topics. And you don't go to just your own topic. You go to different topics and you say, Now, that's a really interesting methodology that they're using. I wonder if I could use it with my topic. And that uh, is, I think, one of the hallmarks of epidemiology is this toolbox and applying these tools to different problems and then developing new tools for, for problems that we have coming ahead of us. And help build more creative interventions then. Yep from them absolutely so let me ask and, you something and also that, that alludes to the, the thing that clarence or, or as clarence was kind of alluding i came in for example wanting to be an aids or hiv epidemiologist and ended up working on diabetes how can you do that i knew nothing about diabetes what i did know is i had the basic toolbox for epidemiologists give me a disease i can do a lit review and figure out about any kind of disease but what I have learned as an epidemiologist is a whole, I've got a whole bunch of tools that I can apply to the investigation of that problem. So let's talk about these tools a little bit. Okay. So, um, you know, you've been in, in, involved in this arena a long time and uh, the tools have become more sophisticated. Okay. Certainly the data oriented tools. You know, for our, our listening audience, just imagine for a second, um, if you look just at COVID, which is, you know, right up front and center for all of us, how quickly and efficiently we were able to gather information about what the heck was going on, not just, you know, in state by state, but, you know, country and worldwide. Think about how quickly we were able to do that and the implications that that quickness had on the development of vaccines and interventions. So, John, just for a second, woe these years. Think about, you know, the the level of sophistication of the tools that you have. Mm -hmm. So when I first came to the Minnesota Department of Health, 
And I first came to the injury and violence prevention section, which was about 1991, I think, uh, on this. Um, I started off at diabetes and in chronic disease and cardiovascular disease at the health department, then moved into to injury. I came in at injury at 1991, and I remember the only data that existed was mortality data. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's really kind of the first place you start with epidemiology and with the work we do is always with the mortality data. Um, if you're going back to uh, it's uh, the number of deaths. But the significant thing that began to change was the use of non-fatal data. So one of my first project that I was hired to work on was the development of the Traumatic Brain and Spinal Cord Injury Registry, which used hospital data. So we started counting all hospitalized traumatic brain and spinal cord injury cases. Uh, then the next piece is, is we, we got a grant from the CDC to investigate using hospital discharge data for all kinds of injuries, not just TBI and SCI. So we started looking at these different injuries and trying to understand them. Uh, then we started looking at um, uh, violence related in that, not even injuries, but uh, looking at things like intimate partner violence, uh, sexual violence, abuse of head trauma, um, uh, and, uh, as, especially as it relates to the uh, child abuse and neglect. So those are some of the changes as we move to non-fatal data. There's also, we've seen increased dependency and need and use of survey data within uh, the public health and with epidemiology. And of course, BRFIS, now the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System, being a real key part of that to understanding uh, what is going on in understanding behaviors. And of course, that develops behavioral epidemiology, which is a big growth area. And lots of people are behavioral big epidemiologists time. now. This is a very important work, dependent on surveys. Surveys are struggling. But another... And that's another whole conversation. You probably ought to do one show just on the, <laughs> I just had survey. Right. Just on the survey work. And we also use the Minnesota Student Survey. But the big change that is coming right now, and it's come to a large degree because of COVID, mm -hmm. but it's come because of all the work that has gone on before. And that is the real-time data that is coming from hospitals. Yes. Right now, well, and it, the groundwork was laid um, uh, a long time ago with uh, meaningful use of data. So all hospitals have to submit their admission, discharge, and transfer data to health information organizations and health information exchanges. When they're required to do this, they do it. When COVID came, the health department said, okay, now we need this information and we need it fast and we need to get all the information on the COVID cases. And so all this data started coming to the health department in real time on COVID cases that were showing up at the hospital so that we could Correct. count it. There was decades of work that led up to that. Oh, absolutely. It really slow. It went really slow. And, um, uh, you know, it, and, and part of it is tied in with the syndromic surveillance system. And I think that was initially some of the work in, in with concerns around bioterrorism um, and 9-11 uh, and all those kinds of things. The system slowly started developing. And I remember working with um, Nate Wright, who was the uh, 
mm-hmm. drug overdose epidemiologist. And we were trying to get the system, the uh, syndromic surveillance system, running more efficiently in Minnesota. Uh, and because it wasn't working very well. And all of a sudden, COVID comes and the system, bang, just seems <laughs> to come very fast because there was this huge need. We're tapping into the system now with traumatic brain and spinal cord injury. But, you know, you can get updates on this data every 15 minutes if you wanted. Um, definitely on a daily basis, you could get it every five minutes if you, you know, wanted. What do you do with real-time data? We don't even know how to think about this real-time data. Yeah, you know, it's, so, it's so, it's all this instantaneous information flow that, um, even for epidemiologists, can be overwhelming. It's, yeah. So, you know, Stan, uh, you know, as I think about the future, and I saw, you know, on the direction, looking at the past, looking at the present, looking at the future. And when I think about the future of epi, it's figuring out how, how do we deal with all this data that's coming at us? We're getting better at collecting the data. But how are we going to analyze all this data? How are we going to do it? And we need to develop new methodologies, new techniques. Uh, develop new ideas because we are, it's coming at us really fast. By the way, uh, you know, for for our audience, it's very, very easy to be driven by this statement. What's, we need to get more data. We need to get more data. Well, I can't tell you how many times I would say, excuse me, before we have so much data that we don't even know what the hell to do with it all. The real thing is, is knowing in advance what the questions are, then go to the data to determine whether or not the data can help you answer your question. If not, then get to get more data. Then one other thing, and then I'll get to Clarence here is, and John, you, you, you reflected on this idea of surveys. Well, I remember when, we used to call people on landlines, okay, to get survey information and to interview people. And then all of a sudden, everybody's get, got away from landlines. And then we had to use cell phones. And then trying to get a hold of people was a whole different ballgame. And that became, you know, problematic at times for epidemiology. Clarence, you're on mute. Okay, now I'm unmuted. Uh, so we talked a lot about pan- the pandemic and, and some of the challenges that, uh, that we had. I want to ask you a question. In this uh, uh, new era, what are some of the challenges um, Epi is, might be facing in this, in this world of uh, fake news? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I've been thinking a lot about this in the... Uh, uh, Stan and, and Clarence, this might be another topic. But one of the challenges that we have, I think, within public health, epidemiology, specifically public health more generally, is the impact of the pandemic on the work public health workforce. Um, we lost, uh, I'm looking at, uh, so we've been looking at some of the work by J.P. Leiter at the University of Minnesota. Um, on the workforce, public health workforce. Um, from 2017 to 2022, about, if I may be slightly off of my numbers, but it was about 75% of the public health workers, 35 and younger, 
um, left the workforce, left the public health workforce. Overall, about um, 50, uh, just a little short of 50% of the entire public health workforce from 2017 to 2022 left public health, uh, city, county public health. It has been really devastating to public health uh, in terms of the, the, the pandemic. The workforce is an issue. And we have another issue, which Stan, you're part of it. I'm part of it. Clarence, I'm sure you're probably part of it here too, is the graying of the public health workforce. Uh, all the boomers who are heading into retirement are taking all this institutional knowledge with them. And we're trying to figure out how to do that. And we were talking before we started the show about different ways of trying to retain some of the institutional knowledge and transfer it to the uh, upcoming um, uh, generations of epidemiologists. And I know that's what I work with uh, at the Minnesota Department of Health now in a part-time position, trying to transfer some of this institutional knowledge. This is really important. This is one of our challenges that we have. So <clears throat> one of the things that we have to do is rebuild the public health workforce. Um, and we're going to have to retain the public health workforce. These are very important things. Um, there are, uh, we need uh, better loan and scholarship programs for students uh, in public health. And there is work that is being done right now by the Association of uh, public health students to try to develop that loan program. Um, Senator Smith was very instrumental. Minnesota's uh, Tina Smith was instrumental in getting in the last appropriations bill that was signed on December 29th, uh, authorization for a public health worker loan program. Unfortunately, even though that was in the appropriation bill, there was no money in the appropriation bill for the public health workers. Now, as we, Stan mentioned at the very beginning, I work for um, uh, St. Mary's University of Minnesota. We're very conscious of the financial pressures upon the students that we're working with. And we, in particular, work with uh, our students, um, usually are working full time and uh, just taking one class uh, a term uh, with us. They do have to deal with real financial pressures, their starting families, et cetera. And a loan program would really make a difference. Now, I'm going to give one little pitch here uh, for what St. Mary's is doing and how they've stepped up to the plate to rebuilding the public health workforce. The tuition at St. Mary's University has been $700 a credit, and the program has been 42 credits along. Uh, or it, it takes 42 credits to graduate for the MPH at St. Mary's. The uh, the Board of Trustees for St. Mary's University, in stepping up to the problem of the public health workforce, has reduced the tuition in the MPH program from $700 a credit down to $545 wow. a credit. This is an incredible, yes, and tuition in just about any other program has gone up at St. Mary's and really any place else. St. Mary's, they reduce the tuition. But this is an example of how we all together in society have to be working together as part of the rebuilding of the public health workforce. That's, That's great. What this show is doing right now is, is part of that. And St. Mary's is part of that. But we all have important contributions to make in terms of rebuilding the public health workforce. And Clarence, 
That's one of the big challenges that we have in epidemiology right now. Thank you. You know, epi has, is, was, you know, when I was at the health department, like my right hand, okay? It was like, no matter where we were going in the cardiovascular arena, I always needed and depended upon on epidemiological knowledge in order to help drive us. And all I can say to, to everyone is that will continue. It's got to continue because believe me, there are going to be more and more issues, health-related issues that we have to investigate and have answers for. John, we could we could definitely go on. We we could take we could we could do epidemiology by subject, <laughs> right, <laughs> and that would true. be a whole that would be a whole new podcast altogether. But I want to thank you tremendously for for being on our show. We invite you, by the way, as as the work proceeds at uh, at St. Mary's, if um, if you perceive a need of getting some word out please feel free to use health chat or just contact us as a vehicle to get some information out there. And we'd be happy to, to do that for you. Okay. Clarence, last thoughts. I'm excited. Thank you very much. Can you hear me? Okay. I'm excited. Uh, thank you very much. Really. I, I appreciate you and uh, would love to be supportive of any kind of work that you're doing around epidemiology and uh, especially as it relates to the community. I think that it's important for, us to really understand the importance of this, but also to be uh, engaged in the work and the education. And I will tell you this, every time I get a chance, I always tell people, public health, I drank the Kool-Aid. So I'm really, I'm really a strong proponent, you know, to, to, to all young people like try public health. Absolutely. So for our listening audience, thank you so much for listening in. Our next show that we have is with Dr. George Realmutu, and we're going to be talking about cannabis and the ins and outs of all the different issues surrounding that, that particular subject. So stay tuned for that. So in the meantime, for everyone, keep health chatting away. Hi, everyone. It's Matthew from Behind the Scenes, and I wanted to let everyone know that we have a new website up and running helpchatterpodcast.com. You can go on there. You can interact with us. You can communicate with us. Send us a message. You can comment on each episode. You can rate us. Uh, and it's just another way for everyone to communicate with uh, Stan and Clarence and all of us at the Help Chatter team. So definitely check it out. Again, that's helpchatterpodcast.com.